good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. Um, we are in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Um, we have started in Genesis about a month ago, and we actually already preached these three verses in their context with Genesis 1 as part of the creation story. This is the seventh day. And uh, we preached it in its context a couple weeks ago. And uh, this morning, we're preaching just these three verses, and I feel a little bit like the mouse in the If You Give a Mouse a Cookie books. Have you ever read those? Because if I'm going to preach just from these three verses, but they've already been preached in their context in Genesis 1, well, I'm going to have to go to Hebrews 3 and 4, where it talks about the promise to entering this Genesis 2 rest still being open. And we're going to go there. We're going to have to go through Psalm 95 to Exodus 17, which is what it's talking about. If we're going to be in Exodus 17, we're going to have we might as well just, just go to Exodus 16 and the first Sabbath with the manna, right? And if we're going to talk about the Sabbath, we, we should probably go to the Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12, because that's what Hebrews 4 says is the entrance to the, the, the rest in Genesis 2 that we're to enter through. And so we're all, all the way back to the beginning. And so I'm, I'm just telling you up front that we're going to kind of go all over the place a little bit this morning. And I, I think it has a clear and cohesive message, but it's, it's going to feel like the cookie has a lot of ingredients in it, uh, because it does. So I'm going to pray that God will help us to digest it together as best we can, and then we will stand and read, and then we will try again to uh, do this new call and response after the uh, text that we read, the grass withers, the flower fades, and we'll all say together, but the word of our God will stand forever. We will try our best, and there's always next week if we, if we mess it up again. So I am going to pray, and then we will read. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you with open hearts and open minds and open lives this morning. We want to ask one thing of you, that we would dwell in your temple, to gaze on the beauty of Christ to sit quietly at his feet, letting him speak, beholding wondrous things. Pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and then I'm going to actually flip ahead and read from Hebrews 4. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And Hebrews chapter 4 while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should, see, should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, 
For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, Psalm 95, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. A uh, big idea for us this morning would be that the endless rest of the Lord is available. There we go. The endless rest of the Lord is open to all who can stop working on what is finished. And we'll, we'll look at it in three parts. The endless rest of the work and then of the Lord and then how we can stop working on what is finished and what we need to keep working on. That will be finished. So first, the endless rest of the Lord. See in Genesis 2 that God rested, rest, which, which literally here means to cease, to stop working. God stopped working. Why? Is he worn out? Is he washed up from the work of creating everything like some of the other creation accounts might suggest? Well, Isaiah wants to interrupt this line of thinking. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He is, his understanding is unsearchable. All right, well, if he's not washed up and worn out, maybe he's just grown disinterested. Maybe he's just kind of done with this and moved on to the next thing. He stepped back. He's a divine watchmaker. Set it and forget it. Here's the world. I'll just let the humans be in charge and, and come back later, see what they've done with things. But no, see, if, if God is disinterested, he doesn't say, where are you in Genesis 3.9? See, the, the whole Bible, we see God actively involved in the world, speaking, providing, guiding, upholding everything by the word of his power. So if God is not washed up and he's not a watchmaker, what's happening here? Well, that word rested is paired with another word. They're both mentioned twice. They overlap in these three verses. It's the word finished. God stops working because there is no more work to be done. It is finished. In light of all this, I want to I pause real quick and, and propose a definition of rest. This might be a way to think about rest, that to rest is to stop working on that which is finished. To rest is to stop working on that which is finished. Now, I, I think that some of you don't like this definition very much. Because it feels like it's, it's, it's lacking something. Rest, we say, it's about being and feeling rejuvenated and energized and, and satisfied. And, and you're right. And you're describing the effects of something being finished, right? When you finish a project, it feels good. When you cross something off your to-do list, it is satisfying. And the bigger and harder the work was, the more satisfying the completion of that work is. Crowds of people attend graduation ceremonies, not 
because they enjoy watching people wait in line, but because it's the finish line. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's a good, satisfying, rejuvenating experience to finish something, to complete something. God has worked this into the world, and so we love it. I count at least nine other verses in just the New Testament about the goodness and prize of finishing the course, pressing on to the prize. Completion is good, satisfying thing. I know we don't always get to experience this completion and wholeness, but for now, just stay with me. I say that one good way of talking about rest is to say that rest is to stop working on that which is finished, which leads us to ask, what is finished? Well, the work that he had done, the work that he had done is finished in creation. It's the created order. It's very good, he says. So good, in fact, that God enters in. So if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I'm going to read us a couple verses. We talked about how it, at this time of this writing, a temple was, a, was God, a God's resting place. It was where a God lived on this earth. And while other gods had built temples out of stones and such, the Lord created everything as his temple. And having completed his dwelling place, he enters in. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is my place? What is the place of my rest? Psalm 132, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. So the picture we're given here is that God stopped working on the created order because it was finished and has now become his resting place, his place of dwelling. The Lord has finished constructing his temple. Now he's entered it. He's finished building the house. He moves in. He's finished all the wedding prep and he enters in to marriage. Furthermore, we see that the seventh day never ends. Evening and morning come on the first six days, but on this seventh day, it never comes. This is not a mistake. So many words and phrases are repeated seven times in Genesis 1. This absence would be felt. The cadence is interrupted. It draws our attention. It emphasizes the never-ending rest of the Lord dwelling with his people in creation. And it's within this never-ending seventh-day rest of the Lord that Adam and Eve are to begin the work of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and exercising good dominion over creation. As God's image-bearing representatives, like we talked about, Last week. So we can see that work is actually not the opposite of rest. There is work that is finished, but there is still work to be done before the fall. And work is to happen within the finished work of the Lord. Mankind is to work with God within the created order to finish forming and filling the earth, multiplying his presence and praise throughout it all. So God blesses the seventh day. His blessing, as we've seen earlier, in, in the earlier blessings in Genesis, they carry a, a procreative power in them, right? They are the life that God breathes into his commands to make them fruitful. God's blessing multiplies and enlivens its recipient. Furthermore, God makes the seventh day holy. He sanctifies it. He sets it apart. Just like the temple and the priests were made holy, God makes this day, this never-ending day, holy. The seventh day was what Jewish rabbis have called 
a temple in time. Isn't that great? Sabbath day, the seventh day being a temple in time, set apart. Just like creation was the temple in space, so this seventh day was the temple in time. It isn't until after the fall that a temple becomes a particular space on earth and the Sabbath day becomes a particular one day out of seven. The blessing and sanctifying of this never-ending seventh day is declaring that the dwelling place of God with man is to be everywhere and all the time spreading over the earth. So you can, can you see with this how, how your vision, your perceived need of rest might actually be too small? We work for our lunch break, then we work for the end of the day, then we work for the weekend, for vacation, for retirement. On and on we go with some finish line in mind, and that's good, it's normal. It has its limits, right? We finish a project, we find a new one, we change one diaper, then another, one sink load of dishes, then another, back to work after lunch, back to work in the morning, back to work on Monday. The reality is our lives are full of unfinished business. I had a day the other week where I worked all day and finished nothing. I hit roadblocks, limitations on everything, and I made progress, but I didn't complete a single thing. It was exhausting. We watch the news and we scroll through never-ending web pages of issues and stories and problems begging for some sort of resolution and completion and finality. We're exhausted. So we try to fill our lives with the experience of rest whether there is any completion or not, right? We all want to feel like hobbits arriving in Rivendell at the end of a long journey, but, but here's the thing. We can, we can fill every spare moment of our lives with feasting and lounging and bathing and pleasure, but, but evening always comes on our rhythms of rest. You can fill your life with productivity tips and self-care practices and restful rhythms, as much as you want, and many of those things are simply good, healthy practices for humans. But they will always be as buckets at a well compared with the fountain of living water that we need. The sun always sets on our days of rest, but evening never visits the finished work of the Lord. The created order with God as creator and humans ruling over creation is complete. God with us all the time, everywhere, working to fill the earth with images of him. This work is finished. It's whole. It's very good. It's rest-worthy. Because if you're with God everywhere, all the time, then what trouble could possibly overcome you? How could the work in you and the work of your hands not be carried on to its ultimate completion when you know the Lord is with you? The promise to enter this rest still stands. Moving on to point two, we should stop working on what is finished. We need to get our, our expectations right. We don't want to think we're running one mile when actually we're running a marathon. We'll be exhausted at mile two. But we don't want to run a marathon when the finish line is at mile one. That would be utter toil. We're going to enter this rest with God well. We need to know what is finished and what is not. So we're going to look at two things we need to stop working at or to, to rest because they're finished, and two things we're told to keep working on, to persevere in because they're not finished yet, but they will be. So we don't lose heart. We keep going. 
First, we're to stop working on the created order. Stop working on creation. There's many ways to talk about the fall in Genesis chapter 3. One of them is to say that Adam and Eve, at the instigation of the serpent, go to work on the created order instead of going to work in the created order. Right? They decide it's better to listen to a created thing instead of their creator. And they reach for a created thing to make them like God instead of their creator. They flip the created world upside down. God says it is finished in Genesis 2, but Adam and Eve say, I disagree. You missed a spot. This seems right to us sometimes, but it's a lie. It is finished. And it is good to listen to God because he knows best. He made everything. This means we can rest. We can stop trying to work on the created order by trying to find ways to weasel out of God's commands because 1 John 5 says his commands are not burdensome. Now listen, I, I like dogs, but not as much as some of you. I haven't put my money where my mouth is, you'd say. I don't own a dog, but I live in the world, so I see people and dogs walking around, connected by ropes on our sidewalks. Sometimes the dog is walking calmly right next to the person. This is the dream. But most of the time, the dog is desperately pulling on the leash, choking itself, trying to get to something else, trying to escape the control of its master, which is a strange thing, because having a human master is actually usually a pretty good thing uh, for a dog. They have a place to sleep. They have food in a bowl every day. They get all their itches scratched, right? Now, I'm not trying to get into whether dogs would be better off in the wild or not, but here in East Dayton, they are much better off in a home with a master. There's this dog that's been running through my alley for a couple weeks. I assume it has a home, but I, I don't know. I only see it in the alley, and from a distance, this dog does not look happy. It looks lost and scared and lonely. It's always looking for food, but scared of every noise it hears. But if I get close to it, it gets angry and aggressive. It turns into this tough guy that can take care of itself. But really, it's just lost and scared and lonely. See, pulling ourselves free of God's command seems like a good idea at first, but it doesn't lead to life. It leads us away from life. We were made to live with God like a branch attached to a vine. Detaching ourselves to pursue other things doesn't work out for branches. We wind up dead on the ground, kindling for fire. If you are fault-finding the finished work of God's created order, stop. Stop chafing on the collar that keeps you connected to the fountain of life. Turn around. As Peter says in Acts 3, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, but, but in some way, you're living opposed to the Lord on your own terms. The invitation is for you to, to turn back. If you are a Christian, and there's some area of unchallenged, ignored sin in your life, it is exhausting. Turn back from it. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Jeremiah 6, 
Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You can stop trying to find some secret new path that will lead to your happiness and flourishing in life. Look instead to the finished work of the Lord in making all things good and trust him. His commands are not burdensome. Turn back to the ancient path that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Walk in the maker's way and find rest for your soul. Secondly, you can stop working on redemption. Adam and Eve severed the collar, if you will. They jumped the fence to be their own master, and it isn't restful. God gives them over. He sends them away with a curse and a promised blessing. He provides for them, but he sends them out because it is not good for them to dwell with him like this. He places cherubim, these warrior angels, and a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden temple, the place of dwelling with God, the place of rest. In the Old Testament, we see the physical stone temple. Before that, the tabernacle, the portable tent-like version of the temple. And this is a mercy of God to dwell with his people in the cursed world, but it's incredibly limited. Just like the temple in time is just one Sabbath day out of seven, so the temple in space is just one place on the earth. But even more so, just like the heavens and earth have an inner garden where God dwells with Adam and Eve in a special way, so the temple has an inner room, the Holy of Holies, but it's heavily guarded, a curtain with the cherubim embroidered on it, blocks the entrance, and only the most holy and purified priest may enter once a year. Then in Matthew 12, Jesus shows up on a Sabbath day, and he's plucking and eating heads of grain from a field with his disciples, a group of religious elite Rule keepers called the Pharisees, they challenge him on this, saying he broke the rules of the Sabbath day. Jesus gives a couple good examples of kings and priests eating in the temple on the Sabbath day in God's word in the Old Testament. And then he says this in Matthew 12. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, says something greater than the temple is here, but the temple is the dwelling place of God with man. What could be greater than the temple? What's greater is God dwelling in man. Jesus, fully God, fully man, the Word become flesh. He is the walking and talking temple. God with us, Emmanuel, he's here. He's walking through the cool of the grain fields, talking to us. And when Jesus is nailed to the cross, having given himself up as the, the once for all sacrifice for sins, he, he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. At that moment, the curtain in the temple, the actual curtain in the actual temple, the one with the embroidered cherubim symbolizing the closed gate to the garden resting place, that curtain like a shadow on a wall that simply follows the movements of the substance, that curtain matches the flesh of Jesus. 
and it tears in two. The book of Hebrews tells us that the promise to enter this Genesis 2 rest of God still stands. And we enter this rest by holding fast our faith in Jesus Christ, opening the way for us to be with God again. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. By the sacrifice of Jesus, you are washed and worthy to go right into the presence of God so you can rest. You can stop working. It is finished. The way is open and they're not checking resumes at the door. The invitations to the feast of life with God have gone out to everyone. And everyone who's not too busy throwing their own personally impressive banquet says, yes, I'll be there. Everyone who can stop working to earn the invitation accepts the free gift and follows Jesus. See, the Pharisees, they're really good at following the rules and they're really bad at remembering why the rules are there in the first place. The Sabbath day was made for man to stop his unfinished work in order to remember the finished work of the Lord and creation and redemption. We see this in the Ten Commandments given both in Exodus and Deuteronomy. The reasons to observe the Sabbath day are because God created and finished the heavens and the earth and because God delivered them by his mighty hand out of slavery. See, when God's people are slaves in Egypt, there's no finish line for them. They work for themselves and the Egyptians. They are heavy laden, doubly burdened. All the fruit of their labor goes to another. But the one true God turns creation upside down with the plagues, and he delivers them from bondage to bondage, and he's taking them to a promised land where the cities are already built, the vineyards are already planted. It's flowing with abundant flocks and crops. The work there is finished. They get to just enter in to enjoy the finished work of another. The spirit of the Sabbath day, the temple in time, was to remember that God made everything out of nothing. And God made you free from bondage. It's a day to remember that once we were nothing, but God made us something. Once we were nobodies, but God made us his people. He has done it, and it is finished. The mighty hand of God made everything, and it is the mighty hand of God who sets you free. The regulations for the temple in time and place were to help us remember how great our God is. But the Pharisees are trying to use them to show how great they are personally. They're not content with God seeing them and receiving their redemption from him. They need to be seen by others as great in themselves. They keep working when it is finished. They're still planning the wedding day when they're already married. It's a burdensome toil, and they share it with the people. I'll tell you briefly an embarrassing story because I'm, I'm well acquainted with a heart 
like a Pharisee that wants to, to earn its way into a free gift. When I was in high school, I played on the soccer team, and we were in this tournament thing, and there was this tiebreaker to see which team would go to the championship game, and all the other tiebreakers were tied, and so the last thing was these two teams in the group would meet on a field at a goal and have a penalty kick shootout. No game, just, just show up and do a just quick penalty kick shootout. The winner goes to the championship game, and so it's best of five, and then it goes one-on-one, -on -one, and the coaches choose, and the coach chose his five, and I wasn't a part of the five, and so I'm sitting with the other teammates on the grass watching, and I don't remember how it happened, but our team wins. We, we win the best out of five. Victory, right? We, get, we go. And, but I, I'm sitting here on the grass, and I, I, I'm not entering into this victory. It's very embarrassing. But so, something comes out of me physically or audibly, visibly, I don't know. Because someone next to me says, what's wrong with you? And I must have sighed or, or grumbled. He said, what's wrong with you? And I just, I just told him. I said, I wanted to get to take a kick. And the reason I remember the story, because he said two words to me after that. He said, you're weird. <laughs> so you're weird. And, and he's right, because my team just won, and I'm sitting here saying, no, the work isn't finished. That, that victory is not enough. See, I have a different finish line in mind, and we're not there yet. There's more work to be done. I don't want to just receive the victory from somebody else. But God's given us the victory, and it's all through Jesus. See, our work in this world is hard enough. At our jobs, raising children, caring for property, loving neighbors, but there's an additional burden placed on us by the world, by the evil one, by our own sinful hearts. It's the burden to make a name for ourselves, to make up for what we've done, to be impressive in our own right, to be a self-made somebody, to present ourselves as washed up and worthy. So our normal vocations take on an extra weight, and we can never be good enough. We can never measure up to the snapshots on social media. We can never feel guilty enough or punish ourselves enough for our sins. We cannot make ourselves worthy, and we're exhausted and heavy laden with this double burden. Well, right before the Lord of the Sabbath says something greater than the temple is here, Matthew records him saying this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The Lord of the Sabbath says, come to me. Not the Lord of the Sabbath day, one in seven. The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the ceasing of all labors, the Lord of the finished work, the Lord of being in the presence of God. He says, come to me with your burdens. The Lord of Sabbath rest says, come, give me those burdens. Look at what I have done. It is enough for you. We move on. Thirdly, let's keep working on what will be finished. 
We can rest in creation and redemption. They are finished by God and God alone. We don't need to race past the finish line. We enter in to rest with him here today, right now. But not everything is finished. Hebrews wants us to see that just as God delivered Israel from slavery to a promised land of finished rest, that's where Joshua was taking them, right? So Jesus has delivered us from slavery to sin into his kingdom. But just like the Israelites, we are passing through a wilderness on the way. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and his work of atoning for our sins is finished. On the cross, he said it, but, but he's continuing to work, praying for us, preparing for us a place. Revelation 21, 1 through 6, tells us this is the vision of our glorious finished future with him. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There's an even more finished work coming. When the sin in our hearts and the suffering in this world will be ended and undone as we dwell with God everywhere all the time. But until that day, we walk on by faith through a wilderness land with God. He has poured out his spirit on us and in us and is building his church to spread on this earth. And I want to draw out two things that the, that the book of Hebrews tells us to keep working on as we enter the final fullness of this Genesis to rest. First Hebrews 3:12 tells us to take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We are to take care and to hold firm to our faith in Jesus Christ all the way to the end. Because in between deliverance from Egypt and the promised land of rest, the Israelites, God's people, turned away from their deliverance and said, we're not going with you. We don't trust you. And we are to heed this and take care to hold fast ourselves. So disobedience, Hebrews says, abandoning the ship, turning around is the end result. Unbelief was the core issue. Those things are kind of hard to, to see and know until it's too late. But there's something in between unbelief and disobedience that's a little more tangible. Might help us pinpoint where our hearts might be growing in, in hardness today. It's not all or nothing, right? There might be some areas where we're growing in hardness. So here's, here's the thing to look for. Are you ready? It's called grumbling, complaining, quarreling. Or maybe you don't always speak your mind. You might call it blaming. It just stays in here, but we're blaming. 
See, back in Exodus, God's people have been set free from slavery, and they sing and celebrate. Then God starts guiding them to where he wants to take them, but the Israelites look around at their present circumstance, and they've been grumbling and quarreling with Moses, right? The one who spoke to Pharaoh, the one whose staff got put in the Red Sea. They grumble because they don't have any food or water. Well, those are pretty legitimate human needs, right? And, and we've talked here at Veritas about lament, how God wants us to cry out to him. When things in our lives don't line up with what he says in his word, he wants us to bring our complaints to him. It's not bad to say that things aren't good, but the Israels aren't, aren't complaining to God. They're complaining to Moses and Aaron about Moses and Aaron and where they're being led in their circumstances. See, on the one hand, they're saying, yes, we praise God, we, we love him. The problem is you, Moses. You aren't giving me what I need right now. You are the reason my needs aren't being met. Moses says this in Exodus 16. Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? He says of Moses himself and Aaron, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. See, the Lord is not washed up. He's not a watchmaker off in the distance. He's standing right there, right behind the person or problem that you are so convinced is keeping you from having any rest in life. He's right here in these present circumstances with you. In fact, he is the one who led you to this very place. The complaint of the hardening heart in the wilderness is summed up like this in Exodus 17, 7. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In the wilderness, these doubts Arise, we say, yes, God made everything, and yes, Jesus saved me, but everything is really hard, and it's falling apart, and I can't see how my needs are going to be met. Where is he now? What is he doing? I'm not saying that these thoughts and doubts will never pop up from time to time. And suffering in the wilderness, they will be there. They will enter your mind, and when that happens, we don't need to despair, but we do need to take care. The Lord of the Sabbath says, come to me with your burdens. And right before he issues that invitation, he declares a prayer. Matthew 11, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, these mighty works being done in the cities of Jesus, these, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That might be one of the best ands in the Bible. Do you see that? No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son 
chooses to reveal him. Father, the Lord of heaven and earth. No one knows this Father except Jesus the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. How is Jesus going to take your burdens and give you rest? Well, one of the ways is he's going to share his Father with you. By coming to Jesus and being united by faith, you now know the Lord of heaven and earth as your Father. The Maker is your Father. His presence is enough for your provision and protection. He cares for you and leads you where you need to go, even when you don't understand. When the Israelites complain to God through Moses, he doesn't strike them dead. He gives them bread miraculous bread from heaven in the wilderness, bread called manna. It's actually the first time in the Bible that God instructs his people to keep the Sabbath day. He gives a day's worth of manna for five days. On the, on the seventh day, there's no manna. And on those five days, they only get a day's worth because if they try and keep it overnight, it rots, it stinks, it breeds worms. But on the sixth day, you remember the sixth day in creation? Humans, image of God, very good, the double blessing. On the sixth day, the manna is miraculously preserved from rotting for them to eat on the seventh day, so they don't need to gather any manna. It is utter toil to work on the Sabbath day trying to gather manna because there is none. The Lord has already provided everything you need. It is finished. This manna, this gift for grumblers, this Sabbath day rhythm is God reminding and recreating his people there to remember that this God who delivered them out of slavery is the God who made heaven and earth. And thus he is able to provide for all their needs no matter where on earth they find themselves. His presence is enough for your provision and protection no matter how dire the circumstances. We can rest. We don't need to be the maker. We don't need to be the shepherd. We have a good one in our Father. I know that we look around our circumstances in this world and we don't like what we see. The wise and understanding get to work explaining. Our grumbly grown-up hearts, they start blaming and complaining, but behind it all are the lost and scared questions, where is God? What is he doing? And the little children with the maker as their father, well, they, they have the answers, don't they? What is he doing? He's leading us to the promised land. Where is he? He's right here with us. He knows the way. Seems almost too simple to believe in our busy lives. A couple of weeks ago, I needed to run some errands. I was taking a couple of the kids with me and we're loading up the van, and a little one says, Daddy, is it just the three, I mean, is it just the four of us going? I look around, and I say, no, it's just the three of us, you, me, and your sister. And she says, um, Daddy, did you forget that God goes with us everywhere we go? <laughs> yes, I did forget that. I get busy. Thank you for reminding me. Oh, oh, to be like a child that knows that the Heavenly Father is guiding and going with them everywhere. All right, because the child gets in, in the car. Daddy, where are we going? 
to the store. Which store? That one big store, you know. Okay, do you know how to get there? Yes, I do. Is this the right way to the store? Yes, it is. Okay. Are you sure this is the right way? Yes. Okay. Big stores have big parking lots these days. They're scary places for kids because we train kids to be scared of getting hit by cars, rightly so. And cars just kind of go everywhere in parking lots. It's chaos. So the child is very afraid, and the father says to the child, hold, hold my hand. The child instinctively recoils, right? Maybe they start running. The father takes the child by the hand. They're squirming and wrestling. But then a big truck drives a little too close, and the child stops pulling away and holds tighter. The father and the child make it to their destination every time. We can persevere because his presence is enough for your provision and protection. Just briefly, one thing that might make this a little more practical to give him your burdens on the way. I heard a pastor say it who heard it from another pastor. It's just a simple way of praying when you don't have much time or when you do have much time to say, Father, I give you myself. I give you my life and I give you my day. I give you myself, my body, my soul, my, my strengths, my weaknesses, my personality, my proclivities. I give it all to you. I recognize that you are with me. I give you my life, my hopes, my dreams, the things I'm, I'm hoping for, and the roadblocks and the, the hardships on the way. I acknowledge that you are with me. I give you my life. I give you my day. This stressful meeting coming up, this project I don't want to do, you are with me. Help my unbelief. Lastly, we keep working on building the temple. What temple? Well, Ephesians 2 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus ascended into heaven. He sent his Spirit to dwell in us. The dwelling place of God is now in his people. The temple of place and time now goes with us wherever we take it. To the end of your street, to the ends of the world. How do we take part in building up this temple? I'll give you a hint. It comes out of your mouth. It's not grumbling or complaining. It's exhorting, encouraging. One another. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhorting doesn't mean it's harsh. It sounds like a harsh word to me. It doesn't mean that. But it's not casual chit-chat either. It's, it's intentional. It's committed. It's comforting even. That word is used to, to be comfort. It's encouraging, it's persuasive, it's addressing one another earnestly. 
not desiring any of our brothers and sisters to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and fail to reach that day when Jesus makes all things new once for all. There's an everyday, all-the-time element of building up, and there's a special time on Sunday mornings when the dwelling place of God with man comes together in space and time, here and, and all over the world in little sprouts of the vine. We let a few people speak. We weigh what is said. We sing to one another. We pray for one another. We devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture together, letting all these things be done for building up. We're told in Hebrews 10... 25, not to neglect meeting together. This is the habit of some. Well, sometimes we get into bad habits, right? We live in an age where we're told that we are the ones primarily responsible to care for ourselves, and so we get into the habit of looking at our options, deciding what would be best for me any given Sunday morning. Sometimes church is what I need, but sometimes other things. I'm going to read this section from Hebrews 10, and let's see if we can see what or who is being neglected when we get into the habit of not meeting together. This comes right after being told that Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice for sins and that we should draw near to him. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, it's thoughtful, how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but instead encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not for your sake that you need to kick the habit of missing churches. For us, it's beneficial for you too, of course, but we need your encouragement, says God, to keep going. We need the spirit in you to stir us up to hold fast and keep the faith with our lives and actions. The day is drawing near. When Christ will wipe away every tear, but today we're in the wilderness and we need one another showing up and speaking up. So are you saying that I'm not allowed to do anything on Sunday but come to church? No, Colossians makes it clear that the Sabbath day regulations were merely shadows compared to the Lord of the Sabbath himself. So in that sense, no, it's not a law, it's not a burden and Christians have always maintained that there are works of necessity and mercy that might not allow first responders and medical professionals to be here every week as we need certain life-giving services running all the time. And there's going to be medical conditions and life circumstances that leave you providentially hindered from joining us from time to time. Those aren't bad habits. But what I would like to say is that those who clearly see how God has mercifully set them apart for his set-apart rest. Well, they tend to set themselves apart for his purposes, whatever they may be and whenever they may be. Logistically, if the whole church is going to come together, we have to agree on a time and place. And since you can only be in one place at a time, you might need to develop the habit of saying no to other things that would happen at that time. Or to put it another way, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of a real dead man coming back to life who has claimed all these things, the reality of the resurrection has a tendency to interrupt the regularly scheduled programming of our weekly routines in this life. In fact, it's the resurrection of Jesus 
That is the whole reason we no longer meet on the seventh day of the week. Some like to say that Jesus rose from dead on the eighth day of creation or the first day of the new creation. So we gather now on the, the first day of the week. Remember with me what that very first Lord's Day was like. Some women had these plans to get up early and go anoint Jesus' dead body and grieve together. But those plans got interrupted. And they encountered an angel at the empty tomb who sent them running back with a message to speak. Well, Peter, some of the men, they had plans to stay home that morning. They were sulking. All their plans were falling apart. They were hiding in shame for their failures, afraid for their future. But the women knock on the door. They tell their beds they need to reschedule while they run to see for themselves. Then there's a couple of people who are traveling on a road to a town called Emmaus for business or pleasure, we don't know, but a strange man on the road helps them to see how all the scriptures are being fulfilled in the risen Jesus. It's late and they need to turn in for the night, but then they recognize Jesus having come back from the dead and they cancel their plans to stay. They travel all the way back to Jerusalem to share with the other disciples what they had learned. Everybody is running on this first Lord's Day. It's full of activity and life as good news circles from lips to ears and back again. It is the same spirit of the old Sabbath day or remembering your maker and your redeemer. It's a day that interrupts and, and rearranges our normal work so that we might run and tell others the good news, building up the temple until Christ returns. So as we run this race, laying aside every sin and weight that clings so closely, looking to Jesus, the finisher of works. We rest while we run. And we start a new habit of neglecting other things, saying, I'm sorry, other thing. Actually, I am busy. I'm building a temple, a resting place. In the middle of the race, a resting place every step of the way. What do you mean you're building a temple? I mean, I've got these brothers and sisters. And Jesus, he rose from the dead. He calls them living stones. And some of these stones are in precarious places. Some of them have been praying for healing for years. They're starting to wonder, is the Lord even among us? Some of them are being choked out by the cares of the world, and they're wondering, is he even here? Some of these living stones, they're having so much success in the world that their vision of the prize is starting to get blurry. Some of these living stones have so much struggle with indwelling sin and guilt that they're doubting that the maker could ever be their father. So I need to go build this temple. How do we do it? We come and we read how God has finished creation and we sing and pray. We read how God has finished our redemption and we sing and pray. 
We hear from his word. We receive his invitation to the table. We mingle in conversation before and during and after, remembering and resting and rejoicing. Remembering, resting, and rejoicing. The same thing every week, right? Peddling. Peddling. Same motion. You know, I've never heard a kid get off a bike and say, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. Because they know that they're going somewhere. Don't be deceived into thinking that there is no movement here. Drawing near to Jesus while that day draws near to us when the dwelling place of God is with man. Let us keep striving to enter that rest. The Father will hold our hand every step of the way. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Pray it would be a lamp lighting our steps. Pray you would help our unbelief, help us to hold fast, and help us to rest here and now with one another. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.